Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. If you're an investor who is thinking about issues around social justice, you want to be scrubbing your portfolio. You want to be looking for private prisons. You want to be looking for payday lenders. You want to be looking for those types of companies who are essentially making their money by taking advantage of people who have limited financial options. That was Laura Callanan, founding partner of Upstart Colab, a sponsored project of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Before launching Upstart Colab in 2015, she served as Senior Deputy Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, leading all grant-making programs, operations, and research. Laura previously edited the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco Community Development Review on the topic of creative placemaking. As a consultant with McKinsey & Company's Social Sector Office, she led work on social innovation, sustainable capitalism, and social impact assessment. She served as Senior Advisor at the United Nations Development Program, Executive Director of the Prospect Hill Foundation, and Associate Director at the Rockefeller Foundation, where, in addition to her responsibilities managing the endowment, she co-led the Foundation's first impact investing efforts, which included two investments in the creative economy. Welcome, Laura. Hey, Max. Laura, here we are, virtually on the eve of a federal election. Can you give us a sense, as an NEA veteran, where you see the possibilities of public support for the arts heading next? About three years ago, I wrote a piece with Carla Javits, who is the daughter of Senator Jacob Javits, who promulgated the legislation that gave us the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And the piece that Carla and I wrote is titled, Another Way to Fund the Arts in America. I think that kind of tips you off that I certainly believe that a democracy should be supporting free speech and creative expression. I guess the fact that I left the National Endowment for the Arts to launch an effort to connect impact investing to the creative economy is the spoiler alert for what I imagine the future of federal arts funding in the United States portends. From the vantage point of the National Endowment for the Arts, it was a pretty clear problem and I guess also opportunity. As you know, the federal arts budget, it's pretty de minimis. It's about $160 million a year. Now in the United States, we have a robust ecosystem around philanthropy, which is wonderful. And so the arts receive about $20 billion a year from individuals and corporations and foundations philanthropically, which is so important. But from the vantage point of knowing the impact investing, the sustainable and the impact investing space, I recognize that there's $12 trillion in aggregate of assets in the United States. One out of every $4 invested is invested in a way that's intending to drive a financial return, but also social or environmental impact. And unfortunately for the arts, unlike health and education and the environment and reducing homelessness, criminal justice reform, recidivism, and, and all of these other important social issues that you and I probably agree about that have found their way to be topics of priority for impact investors. Arts and design and culture and heritage and creativity up to this point has been overlooked and has not been a focus point for the wealth advisors, the fund managers, and that makes it impossible for the investors to deploy their money there. A joke I know you've heard me deliver over and over again, which is why people who love the arts should care about impact investing. It's because in the words of that great American bank robber, Willie Sutton, that's where the money is. Rather than continue to wring our hands over the underfunding of the arts at our federal arts agency, 
what I've been trying to do is open a new path of financial resources for creative people through sustainable and impact investing. Can you ever see a time when federal support of the arts has an uptick? It's become a political football, as you know. And what I learned in my experience at the National Endowment for the Arts is that it's an agency that's been in a defensive crouch since Jesse Helms was in Congress. In the piece that Carla Javits and I wrote, speculating what the future of arts funding could look like in the United States if impact investing were part of it, one of the reasons that we thought it was important to create this other route for institutions and individuals to be able to support creative work is that like individual philanthropy, impact investing is impervious to political whimsy. It's a way to democratize the funding and hopefully the results of what creative people are supported to do. I believe it can be a very nice complement to the existing government funding and to the substantial philanthropic support that the arts and culture already enjoy in the United States. Well, full disclosure, the foundation I run, Souls Grown Deep, was the first institutional investor to join the Upstart Collab member community, so I obviously believe in your mission. Would you summarize the goals of Upstart Collab and explain why you've launched the new members community? Well, at Upstart Collab, we believe that creative people solve problems, And we're disrupting the way that creativity gets funded by connecting the $12 trillion of sustainable and impact investment capital in the United States to this country's $878 billion creative economy. Upstart's a nonprofit, and we think of ourselves as a catalyst, a connector, a bridge builder. We're trying to make it easier for socially-minded entrepreneurs working in art and design and culture and heritage and creativity spaces to start businesses and to be able to connect with art lovers and endowed arts institutions and others who want to invest in a way that delivers financial returns, because we're talking about investments, right? We're not talking about gifts and grants. Deliver financial returns, but not just deliver financial returns, to be able to point to a positive social or environmental benefit as well. We launched the members community because in the last 20, 25 year history of the sustainable and impact investing movement in the United States and around the world, we've seen examples where it's really important to bring together a set of like-minded folks. Some will be quite new to a topic like impact investing. Some will have more experience and bring together a community of folks who want to learn together, share opportunities, share due diligence, look at opportunities together, potentially co-invest. And that this is a way to really develop and spread an idea. So the folks who have joined alongside Souls Grown Deep in the Upstart member community, in total, it's 10 members, four foundations, four families, and two endowed cultural organizations. These are individuals and institutions that are really serving as pioneers. We hope they will be ambassadors and evangelists for this idea. They're helping the Upstart team be smarter and pushing us to answer questions that real live investors have based on their very specific and personal financial, social, and creative priorities. And so we believe that building this coalition was an important way to push this idea forward, but we also felt that 10 smart, 
members were going to be able to ask questions and steer the upstart team in a direction that we might not find on our own and certainly would deepen our understanding of this topic way beyond what we could do with desk research or things that are a little bit more remote. When you're having to talk through questions that investors ask, it really is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, and speaking of questions, the clarion call for me was during a conversation you moderated when a question was posed to a major cultural funder along the lines of, it's great that you spend 5% of your endowment annually on grants in furtherance of worthy goals, but what are you doing with the other 95% that remains invested in perpetuity? Laura, is that still the right question? Well, it's definitely the right question for foundations because foundations, as you know, are required by the IRS to spend 5% of their assets every year. And that means 95% of the money stays invested in their endowment unless the foundation is intentionally looking to spend down over time. But to your point, most foundations aspire to exist in perpetuity. So instead of treating that 5% IRS number as a floor, as the minimum that they disperse every year, it's become widely understood to be the ceiling or the maximum really the amount that foundations are spending on their mission and goals. So that question continues to be absolutely relevant for foundations. And happily, since you and I met and you were part of this conversation a few years ago, more and more foundations have both made public commitments to participate in what's called mission-related investing, where they're aligning their portfolio with the stated mission and purpose of their foundation. And more and more foundations who have been at mission-related investing for a while have started to share the results of what this has meant and what this means in terms of positive financial returns, outperforming conventional investments that may remain in their portfolio, et cetera. So absolutely the right question for foundations. It's a similar question for families who may have set up donor-advised funds with dedicated charitable monies there, which they spend slowly over time. And from donor-advised funds, you can also be making impact investments as well as grants and donations. So there's a question of how do you maximize the impact of all the money in your DAF? And it's a related question for the groups of cultural institutions that you and I think about together a lot, museums and libraries art schools, other endowed cultural institutions in the United States. So by Upstart Collab's count, the cultural institutions in the United States in aggregate have $58 billion in their endowments. Very, very few of them have even begun to think about what aligning their investment decisions with their stated mission and with their values could look like. And so one of the things that we're doing at Upstart Collab is trying to engage these organizations in a conversation to understand what the potential would be to amplify their mission and values and what the risk would be to undermine what they state they are about as an institution and the work that they are accomplishing through their programs if their investments are not aligned with the principles and the purpose of the organization. Last year, to the surprise of many, the Business Roundtable made the declaration that shareholder value as an ascendant virtue should not crowd out social obligation on the part of corporations. Cultural institutions have been a bit slow to make a connection between the value that they provide in their service of mission and the way in which they invest. And it seems to me that it's equally important that institutions conduct themselves in a way that's socially responsible and that they invest in such a way. Is that your estimation as well? 
not only is it in my mind as important, but aligning your investment choices with goals around sustainability, thinking about the environment, thinking about how workers are treated, thinking about how the community is impacted. We now have mounting evidence that integrating some of these other considerations actually this is a very positive driver for financial performance. So these are not two decoupled concepts about wanting to grow and maintain your purchasing power from your endowment and thinking about your mission and values. If you are making choices that are sustainable and that consider environmental, social, and governance factors, you are expanding the definition of how you're understanding risks that is material to how companies function. And the better you understand the risk as an investor, the better you're able to understand whether the target return is comparable. And we're calling this now impact investing or sustainable, socially responsible investing, like it's something different or special. And increasingly, and this is where the business roundtable and financial market leaders like Ray Dalio, Larry Fink, David Rubenstein, when they're coming out talking about this, it makes it clear that this isn't something unusual sustainable impact, socially responsible investing suggests that it's something different. This is good investing. This is the way good managers lead their companies, thinking about a whole range of risk and long-term implications. And this is how good fund managers pick those companies. Impact investing as a concept goes back a while, but there is a renewed sense of urgency on the part of public institutions, certainly, to look freshly at their mandate, their responsibilities, and now they're investing. So has that been reflected to date in what you've seen? People have been looking for ways to reflect the things that matter to them in their purchasing decisions, in where they work, and increasingly in where they're investing their money. I mean, you mentioned the events of the summer of 2020 around George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, and impact investors are absolutely responding to that. Social justice has for a long time been on the minds of impact investors, and it's reflected in some examples of opportunities around social impact bonds and things like that. But the way this is manifesting right now is around making sure that entrepreneurs of color have access to capital, that low-income communities, which are often communities of color, have access to capital. You may have seen that Netflix has moved $100 million into Black-led banks, 25 million of that with a partner of Upstart Collab, the Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC. And there are more and more strategies and approaches that investors are finding right now that align with these issues that are in the news. Putting money with Black-led funds, working with firms of wealth advisors that are Black-led. And this is because it's been demonstrated that investors, fund managers, deploy capital with people who look like them. So if you want to get the money to entrepreneurs of color, working with fund managers of color is a demonstrated way to be successful doing that. And then recognizing that some of this is not as developed as you would want it to be. There are a whole set of related advocacy and field building efforts that are underway. And people are being very thoughtful about this. So it's not exclusively working with Black entrepreneurs, but it's thinking through companies and corporate activities that can create harm in Black communities. So for example, payday lenders. 
If you're an investor who is thinking about issues around social justice, you want to be scrubbing your portfolio. You want to be looking for private prisons. You want to be looking for payday lenders. You want to be looking for those types of companies who are essentially making their money by taking advantage of people who have limited financial options. It's been encouraging, I think, to see the impact investing community leverage things that they had already been doing, but situate them as solutions to the problem or the impetus that we all have to address these issues around social justice that are on everybody's mind right now in the summer of 2020. About a year ago, you wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times addressing the controversy around some trustee donations that came from sources that have not held up well to public scrutiny. You tied the possibility of institutional behavior to impact investing as a possible curative proposition. How has that played out? What have you heard back in response to that? Yeah, you know, a year feels so long ago as we have Mm -hmm. this conversation now, particularly with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, not just on our lives and the fact that these museums are for the most part closed right now, but just in terms of focus and priorities. I will say that as people were starting to lift their head up in the late spring, after we all had hibernated because of COVID, a number of museum trustees and art leaders started to reach out to me to ask, how can impact investing play a role in the recovery from COVID-19 for the creative sector? Any opening like that, where people are pushed by need, by are challenged by constraint to think differently, is an opportunity to shake people away from any fear or disinterest they may have had around this topic of sustainable investing and compel them to take a closer look. So as you know, in the last couple of weeks, Upstart Collab virtually convened 15 museums for a couple of hours to answer frequently asked questions around mission-related and values-aligned investing. And we focused primarily on that question that we know is typically first and foremost, do I give up financial return if I integrate considerations of environmental, social, and governance into my investment decisions. So we spent a lot of time on that. But coming out of that meeting, we have already received some very good responses, including word that a museum director circled back to his trustee to say, we got to do this now. So we are looking to not let a good pandemic go to waste when it comes to advancing this idea that museums have the potential to not only fully represent their role as community anchor institutions, but actually to have some great success from a fiduciary perspective if they begin to align their endowments with their mission and values. We know that Groups of people, institutions don't typically transform overnight and that it's usually a bit of a journey, a year or more, where boards have to learn, hear from experts, talk to peers, see the data, start to understand both what the ultimate goal is, but also what some small incremental steps towards that goal might look like from a practical implementation perspective. So we are in the process of continuing to provide access to information, access to experts, spotlighting examples of what peer institutions are doing. And later this year, by December 2020, Upstart Collab, in partnership with Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, we are publishing a report that is geared specifically for leaders of cultural institutions and will be some of the basics around sustainable and impact investing, but really spotlighting examples that we think will be relatable to these institutions 
for example, one that you know well, how the endowment fund of the Louvre Museum in Paris has over the past few years been dedicating 5% of their endowment to a socially responsible strategy that specifically targets opportunities in artisan industries, around cultural infrastructure, around cultural tourism in France and throughout Europe. So when you're able to hold up examples like the Louvre to show museums that this is not a wacky idea, I think it can become very powerful. And so we will continue to do that work. Several cultural institutions have come under fire since the murder of George Floyd for what's perceived as a disconnect between what they espouse as values and how they actually are run. Is this an area of possible reform that could help address some of these criticisms? Absolutely. And, you know, cultural institutions have an opportunity to renew their role in their communities to attract more donations and engagement from women and young people who are real strongholds uh, within the impact investing community and to be pretty forward-looking in this way. Now, I would encourage cultural leaders to get in the game quickly because the foundations and the universities have been at this now for, let's say, good 10 years. And so it makes sense that the next strong group of institutional investors to coordinate an effort around sustainable and impact investing should be cultural institutions. Environmental institutions, health institutions have already begun to align their investment choices with their mission and purpose in the world. And obviously I'm cheering for the cultural institutions, but it's it's really, I think, time for them to engage in this space. The ground has been well prepared for them. And many of the foundations who have made strong, strong mission-related investment commitments are arts funders. So I think that this is really an important time that cultural institutions begin to move in this direction. And it will be not a missed opportunity, but perhaps even a potential penalty in the future if cultural institutions are not seen as being more fulsome in their expression of of what they stand for and representing that, not just in terms of positive statements and programming, but some of these other significant activities that may up to this point have been a little bit less transparent to the public. But I think people are going to be asking more and more questions about, frankly. An abiding concern of any responsible trustee is to think about return on investment. So the pandemic hit, obviously, It's had a profound effect on the economy. What has it done with respect to areas of investment that we call impact investing? It was a question that even we wondered because the last 10 years when sustainable and impact investing has grown so significantly, a lot of that time, that market, the market's been pretty good, right? It's been growing and rising and people perhaps felt psychologically that they had a little extra money that they could experiment with. And so sure, let's try this sustainable impact investing stuff. And the volatility and the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic obviously had a very negative impact on the market. So it was a real strong opportunity to test and review how the funds that do think about environmental, social, and governance considerations were standing up compared to their conventional peers. The results have been really breathtaking, better than any of us, even those who are most loyal to this would have imagined or hoped for. The majority of sustainable and environmental social governance ESG impact strategies 
have performed well or better than their conventional peers in 2020. And these funds, the sustainable ESG impact funds, have seen substantial net inflows of capital year to date, which means more people are investing more of their money under these strategies, even at a time that feels a little uncertain. So that's incredibly positive referendum on this idea. While there have been some questions about whether, since many of these strategies are underweight in fossil fuels and the fossil fuel sector has not been performing well in the past few months, whether it's simply that underweight that explains all of the outperformance and to the extent people ask that question in a way that suggests they want to dismiss the positive performance by attributing it just to this fossil fuels underweight. In fact, the research is showing that the companies that are doing really, really well at this COVID-19 moment are those that are treating their employees really, really well. And that level of security commitment translates not just to employee engagement, but also sort of spreads out to attitudes towards customers. These are some of the things that I find really positive and remarkable. There's a lot of commentary as well that because of all of this, impact investing, sustainable investing is here to stay. It's not just a fad. And there are a lot of people looking into their crystal balls suggesting that if we were ever uncertain about whether this approach to investing would stand up during tough times, we're seeing now that it does and that we can expect more and more of this going forward. JP Morgan, for example, one of the world's largest, most influential financial institutions has now made sustainability one of their key trends and research themes that they're following. It's no longer just a nice piece of research that they're doing in their impact investing group. Sustainability has now been identified as a global theme for the bank writ large. And that means it's up there with technology and global cities and those sort of big global forces that smart people like to think about. The fact that sustainability has moved beyond a niche concern and is being seen as one of the most significant global forces that will affect the future of business, investing, and finance in the world, and that it's JP Morgan that's saying that, to me, is incredibly significant. With the possibility of a change in administration in the fall, I'm curious about the effect of federal policy, whether tax policy or other economic measures, and how that has an impact potentially on ascendancy in the field of impact investing. One of the things that the Obama administration did was clarify for fiduciaries responsible for pension fund investments, that integrating concerns around ESG, environmental, social, and governance, was valid and would in no way risk the fiduciary being critiqued, sued in any way, suggesting that the fiduciary was failing its responsibility in the context of making pension fund decisions and including sustainable and impact funds in those portfolios. That kind of guidance, which since pension funds are overseen through ERISA laws, which is the domain of the government, the federal government, having that kind of guidance and signaling is very, very important. It removes a barrier to the adoption of this approach. It sanctions and confirms what the data is telling us about the quality of the investment decisions that get made when these environmental, social, and governance considerations are integrated into decision-making. So that's one of the things that government can do to be very supportive and helpful in terms of the spread of impact investing. Another thing that happened in the Obama administration was an extension of crowdfunding 
to include investments, not just donations, in small companies looking to grow and looking to raise capital from a lot of non-accredited investors. So investors that have less wealth and so are deemed to be potentially less sophisticated. And typically there are a lot of securities laws that are there to protect people so that they don't make bad decisions or get hoodwinked or take on risk that they're not equipped to handle. And the fact that there are now we funder small change, a whole set of platforms that make it easier for everyday people to make small size investments that they can afford in the companies that their neighbors are starting or in the real estate projects that their neighbors are starting that will improve quality of life, create economic opportunity in their communities. That was another real positive. And it was a way so that impact investing does not remain as just a sort of an elite occupation that a bunch of rich people and wealthy institutions can participate in. But if it's such a good thing, right, if it creates such positive returns, wouldn't you want to ensure that everybody has access to it? So those are two ways that government has recently done its job in a way that is very positive and supportive for the growth of impact investing. So we're coming up on five years since the launch of Upstart CoLab. What's the next chapter, Laura? When we started Upstart, we realized quickly that what we were doing was introducing a creativity lens to impact investing, a way for investors to see opportunities in the creative economy that they might otherwise overlook. And so we took a lesson from our friends who had introduced a gender lens to impact investing so that investors can see opportunities that support women and girls. We went to the mothers of gender lens investing and we asked, you have been so successful and so quickly socializing this new approach for impact investing. What's your recipe? Can we borrow your recipe and try to do this for the creative space? And they said it was a three-part recipe, make the case, build the coalition and bring investable products to market. From the beginning of learning this from them, we've been working in those three ways. But in each phase of our development, we have emphasized a different phase. So in the first three years, as a thought leader and trying to put some data and examples behind this new idea of impact investing in the creative economy, we were very much focused on making the case. We're in, in our minds, the second phase at the moment of building the coalition, which is why we launched the Upstart member community which is 10 art-loving investors, arts institutions, foundations that fund in the arts that in aggregate represent a billion dollars of investment capacity. So they're helping us to pioneer this idea. We're also building the coalition among cultural institutions, convening museums and other cultural institutions and helping them recognize what they can do as mission-related investors. So we're really focused right now on the coalition building step of the three-part recipe. This is a three-year commitment we've made to our members. So we'll spend three years really focusing on the coalition building. And then the final phase is bring investable products to market. And we've done some of that already with our friends at the Local Initiative Support Corporation with the New York City Inclusive Creative Economy Fund. We've got a few other things in the works at the moment. But the final phase would be discontinuing our presence as a field building nonprofit and teaming up with colleagues who have fund management experience and launching a fund that brings all of the expertise and the experience that we've gained in our first two phases to bear, bringing that investable product to market, making it easier for individuals, for institutions to deploy capital in the creative economy in a way that delivers financial returns and delivers social and environmental impact. 
We are partway through phase two, and we are trying to use this time to prepare ourselves for a potential phase three. So that's going to take us through the next five years. That's a lot to look forward to, Laura. Tell us, where should listeners go to follow the activities of Upstart Collab online? We have a lot of information, and all of our research is publicly available on our website, which is upstartco-lab.org. And sign up if you want to receive our periodic news blasts. We're also on Twitter at upstartcollab, no hyphen in collab there. Find us in the Twitterverse. Speaking of the Twitterverse, Laura, thank you for treating us to the sounds of nature in your home between insects and birds. It's been a fantastic backdrop to a discussion about Wall Street. Well, I was going to ask you at the start of this call, Max, if I should close the window. No. I failed, I but I thought you'd speak up, so I hope it hasn't been distracting. No, Laura, on the contrary. It was a wonderful accompaniment to our conversation, for which I thank you warmly for the ways in which you explained a complicated subject so easily, and also for your leadership, for what you're doing for the field and the solutions you're bringing, which I really appreciate. Max, thank you for bringing your expertise as someone who knows the fine arts space so very well to this campaign to bring more capital to creativity in a way that drives positive impact for the world. It's very helpful to have champions like you with us on this journey, and it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for that, and thanks for the time today. Thank you so much, Laura. We've been speaking today with Laura Callanan, founding partner of Upstart Collab a sponsored project of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.